Uh, I'm Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, most of you know me, and it is my joy and privilege to be able to open God's Word and share that with you. Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We'll be uh, continuing in our series in, in Mark. But uh, for those of you that were here last week, you know that I asked Joe to take two weeks to preach uh, my passage, and he graciously said, hey, that's a good idea. And, and and the main reason for that is because Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34, deal with the greatest commandment and second greatest commandment according to Jesus. And that's uh, to love the Lord your God with, with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if you weren't here last week, please go online and listen to it uh, because last week we really went through that passage and we situated those commands from the Old Testament, which is where Jesus was at. That's what he was quoting from, right? Uh, so we took our time and looked at the Old Testament context and really tried to understand what Jesus was saying. But the second week, this week, we're going to be looking at primarily New Testament passages so that we can get a feel for what's going on. And we're asking ourselves, what is a, bib a biblical definition of love? What is a biblical definition of love? Okay, so uh, that's what we're going to be doing this week. Uh, will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we, um, we just come before you thankful. Thankful because we recognize that, that you love us. You care for us. And God, I, I ask that as we, as we open your word and try to understand it, that, that your spirit would be able to speak to us through your word today that we would get a vision of your love for us and that, that would help uh, form in us an understanding of what love means and how we are to love you and to love others. God, will you do that for us today? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, week two of looking at love. And today we're really gonna dive into what is a biblical definition of love. Why do we need to take two weeks to do this? Uh, a couple of reasons. One, uh, I, I quoted David Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, last, last week that he says, if we are going to attribute our sentimental, loose, unjust, and unrighteous notions to, of love to the everlasting Godhead, then we place ourselves in a most precarious position. In other words, what he's saying is, if the greatest commandment is love God with all that you are, and the second greatest commandment is to love others as yourself, we better understand what the Bible means by love. We need to understand what the Bible means by love. And it's really important that we take our time and actually look at it because the world has a whole lot of ideas about what love is. And we need to ask ourselves, are we more informed by what the world is saying or are we more informed by what Scripture says? Uh, think about how love is portrayed in media and, and, and things of that nature. In fact, I would say today love is widely assumed to be what life is all about. It's all about love. Love is our source of meaning and that which gives us uh, purpose and joy and hope even in the face of, of stresses like um, financial burdens, loss, uh, job confusion, job insecurity, family troubles. All of that stuff is difficult, but it's love that the world tells us will help us get through that. And we just have to ask, is that true? Is that, is that the way the Bible treats this word love? Uh, one writer says it like this. He says, uh, love is the new God 
of our age. It is now the West's only generally accepted religion. The Bible's claim that God is love has been subverted to become love is God. And when that happens, when we take the truth that God is love and we reverse it, that love is God, we begin to see that the world works that into a lot of different ways that influence us. It starts to... uh, starts to show up as as an all-inclusive love or a universal love, that as long as love is present, it's good, regardless of what is being loved at the time. You see it in a a romantic, idealized version of love, right? That it's just so precious, right? I almost want to start plucking petals off of a flower. (laughs) She loves me. She loves me not. (gasps) She loves me. Right? And some of you have had that feeling. Uh, most of you will have that feeling sometime in your life. But if you've been in a relationship for any amount of time, you know that that feeling isn't all that there is to love. That that is a, that is a romanticized, idealized version of love that, that is partially true but not 100% true. Right? Uh, the world tries to push out another form of love, that, this hypersexualized love that... That, that love is uh, just all about sex. And that's what's important. You even see it in commercials. Se- uh, products have been sexualized. Why? Because the world thinks that if, if I can get you to love this product, you're going to buy it. And there's this idea of a hypersexualized nature of love. And we have to ask ourselves, is that what Scripture teaches us? Is that the way that love is understood from God's perspective? And then I've already mentioned like this all-inclusive or universal love In other words, uh, as long as you're loving, it's good. And as I was preparing this week, I began to think, what is another word for love in our modern culture? And a lot of times it's acceptance or agreement. In fact, in in the group that meets Tuesday nights, I just posed that question to the group, and somebody even said praise. In other words, if you're not praising someone, then you're not loving them. And I think if you, if you took the time to consider, is that true, you would see those cultural nuances of the message that's put out by the world. So we're going to take our time and actually see what Scripture says and form a biblical definition of love. And before we dig in, uh, we're just going to do a, a quick little word study. Like I said, last week we were primarily in the Old Testament, so this week we're going to be mostly in the New Testament. And there are four Greek words, primary Greek words that were attributed to love in Jesus' time, okay? The first word is eros. It's where we get our word erotic. It's this idea of a sexual or romantic love. That, that word does not, it doesn't show up in the New Testament. It doesn't show up. Now, that's not to say that the Bible thinks that uh, a romantic or a sexual love is wrong. We know that uh, from reading like Song of Songs or Song of Solomon that there is uh, a good thing within the context of marriage, right? Between a man and a woman who are married, that, it is, uh, that, that there is a beautiful romantic uh, love involved there. But that word is not seen in the rest of the New Testament, right? It's not even seen in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. I say, or, just because some of you guys have heard Song of Songs. Some of you guys have heard Song of Solomon. They're the same book, you know. But 
that, the word that's there in that book for love is actually agape, which we'll talk about in a little bit. The next word is, uh, is storge, which is like a familial type of love, a mother's love for her child. And we see kind of the noun uh, version of that in a couple of spots in the New Testament. Uh, but the two remaining words are primarily the words that the New Testament writers use to describe love. Uh, the first one, uh, philia or phileo, it's brotherly love, companionship, friendship, um, camaraderie. It's where we get the, the city Philadelphia, brotherly love. It's not very brotherly loving from what I hear. I've never been, but hey, uh, that, that's, that's the idea, right? Uh, phileo, that's, that's one of the primary words that the New Testament writers use. Uh, the other word that you're probably the most familiar with is agape or agapao, uh, and that is a, a love that is unconditional often referred to as a godly type of love. Um, in fact, uh, early on, it was thought that maybe uh, New Testament Christians invented this word. But uh, through, some, through some research and extra-biblical uh, literature, we've learned, no, that word was around. That word was around, but uh, it just didn't seem to be as in use as the New Testament writers brought it about. Uh, now, I, I just want to caution you, if you try to do like a word study or something like that, uh, sometimes you may think every time it says agapao, it's talking about unconditional love, and every time it says phileo, it's talking about uh, friendship or companionship. But the New Testament writers actually kind of interweave these words, and there's a lot of overlap. There's a range uh, within these words, okay? So try not to read too much into that. that that's just a little kind of a little caution, okay? Um, but let's go ahead and dig in. Uh, the first thing that we're going to see, we're going to see three things about this definition of love, okay? Uh, the first thing is that love is volitional. It's an act of the will, okay? Uh, the second thing that we're going to see is that there's both an inward and an outward response for love. And then the third thing that we're going to see is that love has an object. Love has an object. Uh, so, uh, Mark uh, chapter 12, let's begin uh, just in verse 29. So, Jesus answers uh, and says, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. There's no other what? commandment. This is a command to love God and to love others. The fact that this is a command implies that it's volitional. It is an act of the will. You have a choice to love God and love others, or you can not love God and love others. Do you see how that kind of plays out a little bit? In fact, uh, A.W. Tozer says it like this. He says, love for Christ is a love of willing as well as a love of feeling. And it is psychologically impossible to love him adequately unless we will obey his words. Okay? So it's an act of the will to love. Well, that already flies in the face a little bit of some of the worldly definitions of love, that it's just this feeling that's so strong that it's irresistible. I think of... Uh, I think of Buddy the Elf, mainly because we watch that movie way too much during Christmas time. But he bursts into his father's meeting, and he's, he's wearing this goofy hat, and he kind of like spins around and throws it in the air, and he's like, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it, right? 
And there's this idea of being overcome with a feeling that it impacts the way that, that he's behaving. And if you've ever experienced the feeling, you know that there's some truth to that. But love isn't only a feeling. That there, it, it, There's a truth that is an act of the will. We can choose to love. In the same way that God chooses to love us, despite the fact that we did nothing to deserve his love, we can also choose to love others. Romans 5.8 tells us that uh, but God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We did nothing to deserve God's love. Nothing. We don't deserve it. But he chooses to love us. It is an act of the will of God to love us. Warren Wearsby says it like this. He says, the greatest commandment to love God with all that we are and have, heart, soul, mind, strength, possessions, service, to love God is not to have good feelings about him. For true love involves the will as well as the heart. Where there is love, there will be service and obedience. Service and obedience. We're starting to get into point number two. And the second thing that I want you to realize is that love has both an inward and an outward component. So love is an act of the will, but it also has an inward and an outward component. This is what I mean by that. An inward component. Love is accompanied by emotion or affection. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's just a little bit further uh, from Mark. 1 Corinthians 13. And as you turn there, this chapter is known as what? The love chapter. I love how you guys say the love chapter. Right? This is the chapter that's probably most commonly cited in in weddings. Right? Um, It's the love chapter. But while while I read this, I want you to pay attention to this, this inward response of love, of emotion and affection. Let's look at uh, verse 1, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and all your possessions, what a... What an amazing act of love to give all of your possessions. And if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. So Paul is saying that even self-sacrifice and giving all one has to the poor is worthless without love. That there is an inward response. And all the acts of service, without that inward response, they're worthless. It's interesting. Look at, look at how the, the emotive language that Paul uses as he continues. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. Love does not brag. It is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. That's like its own self-interest. It's outward-faced. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. I like to remind my wife of that. 
Every night, I, I, I cite this, these verses to her, and I especially take time. Love keeps no record of wrong, honey. Just because I didn't take out the trash, you can't be mad at me. No, I don't do that. I don't do that at all. Um, it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It does, uh, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Listen to those those words of emotion, of affection. So there is an inward truth about love. That this, this act of the will should also be accompanied by the inward reality of affection. Okay, that makes sense. Flip back to uh, the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the outward, the outward reality that love also means action. Love also means action. Primarily in obedience, obedience to Christ, in service to others, in self-sacrifice towards the thing that is to be loved or the person that is to be loved. Uh, turn to uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 21, chapter 21. Verses 15 through 17, this is the restoration of Peter. Now, some of you uh, uh, remember Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. Three times Peter denied Jesus, right? And he denies Jesus after saying, I'll never deny you. That's not going to be me. I'll never deny you, Jesus, definitely not. And then three times before the rooster crows, he denies Jesus, right? In this passage in in John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, is the restoration of Peter. Jesus restores Peter. And, And look at what it says. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. So Jesus says to him, tend my lambs. He said to him uh, again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he says, shepherd my sheep. He says a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Jesus is looking for the outward response of love. Did Peter love Jesus when he denied him? I I think he probably did. But he messed up that outward response when he was asked if he was one of Jesus' disciples. He said, no, I don't know that guy. And Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me? Because if it's true, then you will do something with that love. And the thing that I'm asking you to do is to care for my sheep, care for my disciples, care for the people that follow me. Obedience to Christ is a part of loving God. Action is a part of loving It involves service and self-sacrifice. Now, flip back just a couple pages to John chapter 15. This is the 
this is the, the abiding in the vine passage that we referenced um, just several weeks ago. John chapter 15, uh, beginning in verse 8. And Jesus says this, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. We see the call there toward an outward action, that there's, there's a link toward obedience. In fact, no greater love is this, self-sacrifice. One laying down their own life for the good of someone else. And we know that Jesus says this just moments before he's about to lay down his life for his disciples. It's amazing. So, love should be accompanied both with an inward and an outward response. And both should be present. Both should be present. Both affection and action. But it's not like a seesaw that goes up and down. It's not an inverse relationship. If one is leading, we don't say, oh, I think it's great that you love God or you love this person so much, but you don't do anything for them. We wouldn't say, well, just stop feeling that way until you start doing things, right? We wouldn't say that. We also wouldn't say, oh, it's great that you do so much for God or you do so much for another person, but you do it grudgingly because you don't have, have an inward uh, responsive feeling of love towards, towards God or towards that person. We wouldn't say, well, stop serving them until you, until you get those feelings right. No, we would just say, let's correct it. Let's bring both up. Both need to be present. So uh, imagine like a, a wife who has wonderful, deep feelings for her husband, but she doesn't show that love in any way when she relates to him or interacts with him, right? We, we can intuitively understand that that's logically inconsistent. That doesn't make sense. Or, or a man who does everything to serve his wife and care for his wife, but he does it in, in, a, in a grudging sort of way because he doesn't have any emotional response toward her. We wouldn't say, stop caring for your wife while you work on that emotional side. We would say, hey, continue to care for your wife. And let's engage in prayer and find out why, why you're feeling this grudging attitude towards your wife. Do you see that? Both need to be present, and we would, we would call for both to be elevated both the inward and the outward response of love. When our affections are high, but there's no outward action, then we have to consider if we actually love Christ and others. Or perhaps we just feel good because uh, we have no desire to obey or serve. We just have good feelings. And that's not what love is. Love isn't only a good feeling. It is a good feeling, but it's not only a good feeling. It requires action. 
It requires an outward response. And you've heard it several times already. To love God and to love others, which means that love is directed toward an object. Love is directed toward an object. And love seeks the highest good for that object. Which may mean self-sacrifice. In fact, it does mean self-sacrifice. But some objects are not meant to be loved. Some objects are not meant to be loved. And if they're not meant to be loved, it is sinful to love them. It is sinful to love them. Uh, Turn uh, forward in your Bibles to 1 John. It's almost near the end. 1 John chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse 15. John writes, Do not love the world. Hold on, hold on, John. How am I not supposed to love the world? And some of you are probably like, well, hold on. The very first verse I memorized was John 3.16, For God so loved the world. How, How does that go together? We'll get there, we'll get there. John writes, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Do not love the world or the things of the world. For anyone who does the love of the Father is not in them. This is is really important. Because as I've already mentioned, the... The world pushes out this idea that love is the supreme uh, good. And as long as you're loving, that's fine. It doesn't really matter what you're loving. But we're told directly here, do not love the world. And when it says world here in this context, the way that it's being used is it's it's the system that stands opposed to God, that is antithetical to God, to what God says and what God wants for you. And if you love that, that's wrong. And that's sinful. 1 John 4, 8 says, uh, The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. For God is love. We also know God is good. How do we know that? Because, well, Scripture tells us, but also when I say God is good, all the time. time. Like, that's just bred into us. God is good? And all the time? All right. That is true. And it is also true that God is love. Scripture teaches us that. But some people start to make this leap that, okay, if God is love and God is good, then love is good, so all love is good. And that's how we get into a place where God is love starts to switch around and you get into this idea that love becomes the new God. Because it doesn't really matter what you love as long as you love. Do you see how that's at play in this world? And it's harmful. It's just, it's not good for relationships. How do we know it's not good for relationships? If a man loves a woman who is not his wife, that's harmful for the marital relationship. We intuitively know this. And yet, we sometimes bite off on this worldly idea that all love is good. We can't do that. We have to understand that love is directed toward an object, and if that object is wrong, 
that it is sinful for us to love that object. Now, I want to give you an example of this. And there's a lot of examples in our culture of, of love that is wrong in God's eyes. A lot of examples. But this one I thought was really interesting when I read about this. There is a woman who is in love with a plane. You heard me right. There's a woman who loves a plane. All right? Now, I know there's probably a lot of people in here that love their plane because there's a lot of pilots in here, right? And I'm a pilot too. I love my plane. I mean, I love my plane. But I don't love my plane. You know what I'm saying? But there is a woman who loves a plane in a relationship kind of a way. Uh, when I read the news articles about her and, and come to find out that the, this, she's not the only one, that there's, this seems to be a, a thing that is developing, that uh, love for inanimate objects is a real thing, which I find strange. But uh, this woman talks about, I just, I, the first time I saw it, I loved the wings. I love the winglets. I love the engines. And I'm, I'm reading this news article, and I'm like, yeah, I, I love the wings in my plane. I love uh, when there's winglets. I think they look awesome. I love that. The engines? Well, I definitely love the engines. <laughs> and then I was like, well, this is different. The stuff that she's saying is very different. I have to quote, uh, I have to quote her directly. This is what she says. She says, I want to have someone marry us. And say, do you want to marry your 737? And I say, yes. And we kiss. And then I'm immortalized. Listen to the religious connotation there. Then I'm immortalized with him. Didn't know planes had genders. I'm immortalized with him. And we can be together forever. Yeah, that sounds weird to me. And you intuitively know that that sounds weird. But do you know how I know that the world gets this whole idea of love wrong? Because it says that her friends and her family support her and are encouraging her in her love. And there's quotes from them as well. That's how I know that the world doesn't really understand what biblical love is. Because that type of love for an object just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. We understand that love has an object and that if the object is wrong in God's eyes, then love for that object is wrong. Amen? Amen. David Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. He says, love does not look at itself. In other words, just love for love's sake. It is absorbed in the object of its love. This is fascinating to me. That there's this, uh, this idea that you can love something that obviously won't love you in return, but as long as you, you know, it, it's true to you, the way that you feel, then the people around you and the world says, hey, that's a good thing. It's just, it's just wrong. It's not right. And we have to ask ourselves if the objects of our love are good in God's eyes.
if I was to love a woman that was not my wife, that would be wrong. That would be sinful. If I was to love a man that is not my wife, that would be wrong. That would be sinful. Right? Do you guys understand? Love is meant to be within a marital context. Like, marital love is meant to be within a marital context between a man and a woman. Anything outside of that's wrong. There's this idea right now that's at play in our world called polyamory. It's similar to polygamy, but in, with polyamory, uh, it's just, it's exclusive partners, but it could be a group of 10, right, or a group of 20. And again, but they all love each other, so it's good. And I'm seeing a lot of furled eyebrows, maybe because I'm not explaining it well, or maybe because, well, that don't make no sense. Because you intuitively know that. So what do we say about love? How do we understand it? Well, I think we have the bones now for a biblical definition of love. Just in what we've seen already. That love is an, is an act of the will that, that is accompanied with both an inward and an outward response. Inward meaning affection and an outward response meaning action that seeks the highest good of the object that is loved. That is what I would say a biblical definition of love is. And maybe sub-point A to that definition, if the object is wrong in God's eyes, then it is wrong to love that object. It is sinful, okay? Um, one writer says this, that the immeasurable depth of divine love is revealed at the cross. And love is the goal of the redemptive work of the triune God among his people. Love is therefore the true measure of all Christian spirituality and theology. And I think there's a truth to that. But what I love the most is when he says that the immeasurable depth of divine love is revealed at the cross. When we consider what God did for us on the cross, we see both the will of God, we see the inward and the outward response, and we see the object of love. You. Me. People. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But I've already said, do not love the world. So what do you mean? Well, this world here, that, that, that word is used differently in the Bible. This world here is talking about people. For God so loved the world. For God so loved you. For God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son. And that, that idea behind for God so loved, it's not talking about he loved us so much. He had this feeling of love that was so strong. He was overcome by that feeling. And that's why he sent Jesus. That's not what it's about. What it's actually saying here, and some of your translations might reflect this now, that God loved in this way. This was how God loved. This is the manner in which God loved, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It's, that's the way that God loved the world. 
First John 4.10 says that, in, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation is just this uh, fancy word that I had to go to seminary to learn about. But uh, it, it's a fancy word that just means appeasement, satisfaction. God is satisfied in Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. His wrath is satisfied because of Jesus' sacrifice. God does not hold wrath toward you. I need you to hear this. God does not hold wrath toward you if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. It is a free gift by grace through faith. And it's not because you did it, not because you, you did anything to deserve it or earn it. He chooses to love you. He chooses to love you. Amen? I'm so thankful that God chose to love us. I pray that we choose to love him back. And that because of our love for him and what he's done for us, we choose to love others. And we choose to understand that love is an act of the will. And that it's accompanied by affection. And it's seen in action that seeks the highest good for the object to be loved. That's, that's my prayer. That, that's what I'm hoping for. If you have not placed your faith in Jesus Christ yet, today's the day. I know I said that last week, but guess what? Every day is the day unless you do it. And then you learn to walk in that faith. And you learn what it means to continue to love God and to continue to love others. And we want to come around you and help you do that. But I can't believe in God for you. I can't accept Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. You have to do that. And if you have questions about that, please come talk to us. It is the most important thing that will ever happen in your life. This idea of, of love and um, that it is an act of the will and, and there's an inward and an outward response and that it's toward an object is, is seen really well in these words by John Newton. And he can say basically anything better than I can. Uh, he wrote Amazing Grace, which I think virtually everyone in the world knows by now. So uh, listen to these words by John Newton and listen particularly for this idea that it is an, love is an act of the will accompanied with affection, seen in action, seeking the highest good for the object to be loved. Listen, listen to these words. He says, the love of God as manifested in Jesus Christ is what I would wish to be the abiding object of my contemplation not merely to speculate upon it as a doctrine, but so to feel it. He doesn't just want to think about the love of God as, as some doctrine. He, he wants to feel it. He wants to rest in it. But so to feel it. And my own interest in it, as to have my heart filled with its effects and transformed into its resemblance, that with this glorious exemplar in my view, He's talking about Jesus, the example that Jesus sets, that I may be animated 
to a spirit of benevolence, love, and compassion to all around me, that my love may be primarily fixed upon him who has so loved me, and then for his sake diffused to all his children and to all his creatures. That's, that's really well said. That's my prayer for you this week. That's my prayer for me going forward. That we would have an accurate view of what the love of God is. And that we would, that we would sit in that and we would think about that and that we would contemplate that and it would so fill us that we would be moved toward affection towards God and to others. That we would be moved toward action towards God, obedience to Christ, service of his church. Self-sacrifice towards other people. And that we would evaluate if what we love is good in God's eyes. Is it right? And we would understand that love is not this strange feeling that we have to be a slave to, but that it is an act of the will. And we can order our loves appropriately towards God and towards others. That's my prayer this week. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I, uh, I, I think about your love for me, your love for my family, for the world, your love for the, for the people in this room, and, and I'm just overcome with, with thankfulness. I'm overcome with awe. God, I know that, um, that we can learn to love you more with, all, with our whole being. And I know that, that we can love others well. God, I pray that you would help us to see the dimensions of love according to your holy word. That love is an act of the will, that it is accompanied with affection and action, that it seeks the highest good for the object of love. And God, I pray that you would reorder our love so that it's right in your eyes. Father, will you do that? I pray in Jesus' name, amen.